We are in chapter 6 of John's Gospel. And we've just finished that wonderful section where Jesus says, quite literally, eat me. <laughs> yes, indeed. Here, just, just, just chow down on me. If you are hungry, if you are thirsty, if you need strength, if you need to sustenance, if you want to have eternal life, if you want to live, then feast on me. That's how he puts it. That's how he puts it. Let's pick it up. Look at verse 49. No, look at verse 48. I could go back even further. Look at verse 47. Very truly I tell you, Whoever believes has eternal life. Whoever fades, whoever exercises faith, whoever takes their belief and places it into action has eternal life. What kind of action? What kind of faith? What kind of belief? I am. Remember we said that that right there is just a slap in the face? Yahweh! I am the bread of life. It's a declaratory statement. And identif self-identification. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. I mean, the 5,000 had a happy meal. We took the bread, we broke it. We took the fish, we passed it around. We had 12 basketfuls of leftovers. They ate these happy meals. Miraculous food. Kind of like the manna from heaven. Miraculous food. But they woke up the next morning and they're hungry and they want breakfast. And Jesus isn't around to give them their Egg McMuffin. So they go looking for him and they find him. And he says, you're coming looking for me because you ate your fill of the loaves and the fish. You're looking for earthly food. And they said, well, you know, Moses gave us manna in the wilderness. And Jesus' response is, it wasn't Moses that gave you the manna, but it is the Father who will give you the bread of heaven. Me! Me, I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven. And I always ask the question, what is the reference for this? Usually, you know, when you say this, you're referring to something. This is my Greek New Testament. This is my coffee. This is my NRSV. This is my friend Chris. This is the bread that came down from heaven. What's he? What's it? I am. Moi. This is the bread that came down from heaven. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. Remember? Well, uh, hold it. Hold it. Hold it. Remember. In the prologue, in John chapter 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and then on down, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. All of this points back to that statement of Jesus' identity. And that's what he means when he says this. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Remember I said that it was not... A foreign idea for the Jews to equate the word of God with bread and wine that in the Proverbs for instance there are many references to feasting on the words of God 
on the word of God, and that is all in play here. That idea is not something that's going to be foreign to the Jews who were hearing this to begin with. So that connection, if it can be made, then forces you to draw yet another connection. If Jesus is the word of God, then in a sense, feasting on him, you're feasting on the word of God. And they also had no trouble with connecting the bread with the word. A good example of that is the table of showbread, the bread of presence in the temple, which was placed out there in the temple to sort of absorb the Shekinah glory of God. And it absorbed it, and then they gave it to the priests and families to eat. And in so eating this, this showbread, the bread of presence, they then sort of, in a sense, fortified themselves for their service in ministry in the temple. That's an interesting idea. It's almost like inoculating themselves so that that Shekinah glory of God doesn't roast them alive. They've partaken of it by faith, and now they can enter in more safely into the presence and serve in the temple. So it's, it's a fascinating connection that can be drawn between the bread of heaven here, because that was one of the references to the table of showbread, to the bread of presence, was often referenced as the bread of heaven. Very important concept. So this is not entirely foreign to, to the Jews who would be hearing this. Yet, <laughs> although this bit is about him being the bread of life is quite pushy. Would that be the same as, or the same concept as the holy water that we're baptized with? The living water. It's exactly the same idea. Okay. Anyone who remember in in with the woman in the well, Jesus said, "The flowing living water." Believe in me, ask me, and I will give you streams of living water. That is a direct reference to the flowing of the Holy Spirit within our lives and also the concept of we are then baptized into that in Christ Jesus. And that is actually echoed here, referenced in this business here, way back over in verse 35 where it says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Picking it up back over here in verse 50. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. Remember the folk who ate the manna in the wilderness? What happened to them? They all died. They died. Every one of them. They died. Good miracle bread. They died. At least they weren't hungry when they died. Well, they had something to eat. That, they had that in quail. The ones that were the 20 years and younger didn't. Mm -hmm. They went in. Mm-hmm. And the people who ate the loaves and the fish, they died too. Because it was, it was physical, earthly bread, but it was created miraculously, but it's still physical, earthly bread that provided a physical nourishment. Jesus is pointing to something more than the physical. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am, here we go again, yet another I am. I am, Yahweh, the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats of this bread will live forever. Now, thus far, everything's fine. It's a little strange. He's pushing it quite a bit. It's highly problematic. He keeps on saying God's name. 
This business of him articulating God's name is just over the top. But it's all within the full context of Jewish theology, Hebraic understanding, until after the next semicolon. Hmm. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world. That's interesting. Not just your life. Not just the life of those gathered here. It's the life of the cosmos. Greek word here is cosmo. The life of the universe. <laughs> Whoever eats of this bread will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the cosmos is my flesh. Barbecue? Anyone? Anyone? <laughs> Barbecue? The Jews then disputed amongst themselves. I'm not surprised. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Very truly, I tell you, Oh, you misunderstood. I don't mean that you're supposed to eat flesh. Don't you know I'm talking in metaphor? Don't you know I don't really mean this literally? Don't you know that this is all spiritual and not supposed to be taken literally? We're all good Baptists here. We don't really believe that this is literal, right? It would have been nice if he had said that. Yeah. <laughs> the Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man. It gets worse though. Wash it down. <sighs> Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood. Dracula? <laughs> anyone? <laughs> Kosher laws, anyone? Vampire, anyone? Kosher laws, anyone? I mean, first of all, humans are unclean. You're not supposed to eat people. That's just a no-no. You just don't do it. But even worse, by Jewish conception, is drinking human yeah. blood. Ugh. Any blood, but human blood. Ugh. Double dirty. Huh? Double dirty. And not only that, blood is exceedingly important throughout the entirety of Scripture. And for human beings, blood is it's the seat of the soul. It's where, you're, it's where you live in the Jewish idea. I mean, we think of our intellect as residing up here in our brains. And therefore, our soul is somehow hooked into that. But for the Jews, they identified the soul and rightfully so, with the blood. Why? They said the life of the soul resides in the blood. They understood the soul as being the breath. The Hebrew word is ruach. That's the soul that when God breathed into Adam and Adam became a living soul, a living being, the ruach that he breathed in, the breath of God, is the whole idea. And the breath is conveyed to your body through your blood. The blood's principal duty, other than transmitting nutrients, is to carry that oxygen to every cell in your body. That means your soul is not just seated in your brain. 
It's seated throughout your entirety of the Bible. The Jews have it more right than the Greeks do, interestingly enough. They, they see the whole body as the seat of the soul, which is why when the Pharisees came along and started talking about a resurrection, they said you can't have a disembodied soul. You can't have a soul wandering around without a body. You've got to have a body. Therefore, you have to have a resurrection to have life after death. You have to have a body for that soul to live in. It's like a carrier. And it's the blood within it that carries it. Hmm. Well, and Jesus did resurrect. Yes, indeed. That is true. Body and soul. So. That is true. That's the essence of the resurrection and the proclamation thereof. So what did the Sadducees say about that then? You wouldn't have slept with your ancestors. But when Jesus was resurrected. Oh, they, oh well, they, they no, fought with that one. They didn't believe it. They argued against it. They had to. Of course. They wouldn't be Sadducees. It, it, violated, yeah, it violated their understanding of, of what the afterlife was. They believed it was a nice place of soul sleep and rest. But that wasn't the Pharisaic understanding. That would be nice. <laughs> <laughs> there is an aspect about it that is lovely, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. No phones. No nonsense. None of that. No, it's, quiet. It, it's quiet and peaceful. Oh, blessed rest. Yes. That get boring after. For a little while, I, I don't I wouldn't mind that. Although sleeping with my granddad, he had a habit of you know breaking wind at night. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I always keep that match close by. Didn't wake him up though, did it? No, no. I am the living bread, verse fifty one. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats of this bread will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews disputed amongst themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. None at all. Those who eat my flesh and drink my blood. Verse 54, if you haven't got it yet, yeah. he's just, I'm just going to hammer this puppy in. Those who eat my flesh and drink my blood have eternal life, and I will raise them up on the last day. Period. Period. There's no qualification there. There's none. Those who eat my flesh and drink my blood have eternal life, and I will raise them up on the last day. Boy, it gets real repetitive, though, doesn't it? After that, well, because they're not, they're not getting it. He's trying to make the point. You know? I think and in case you haven't, unless you're sitting there going, well, no, nah, he, he still can't really mean this seriously. He's speaking metaphorically here. He's talking about listening to his words and consuming them and listening to his spirit and, and, and drinking it in and living in accordance with, with, the, with the, the way Jesus lived and, 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 and blessed are the poor in spirit and all of the other stuff that we learn from the synoptics. He's, he's talking about that, right? Wrong. Because if you think that, he hammers it in again with verse 55. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Alternative translation. For my flesh is really indeed food, and my blood is really indeed drink. 
I mean, if you haven't got it now, you're not going to get it. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Those who eat my flesh and drink my blood abide in me and I in them. Well, yeah, you, they, you abide in them. They just ate you. <laughs> they just drank you. Of course you abide in them. Interestingly enough, he doesn't start with that. He says, those who eat my flesh and drink my blood abide in me. And then he says, and I in them. What he's doing, I think, is that he's calling, well, he, he says that uh, if, you, if you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no, if, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. So what he's saying is the people that don't are dead. They are dead. Absolutely dead. Think about it this way. If God has given us the image of God by breathing into us and it's being carried in our bloodstreams, how much more of that image of God will we receive and that life of God and that presence of God will we receive when we receive Jesus's into us? Hello. That's just a powerful statement. Without it, you're spiritually dead. You may have physical life, but you're spiritually dead. Because he's talking not just to the disciples, but also to... Uh, well, right now he's talking to the people. The Jews. He's right. talking to the disciples. He's talking to the Jews. He's talking to us. Yeah. Don't forget, we're also in the audience. Who wrote, which John wrote this? Um, which layer is this? This, well, that's something I want to come to in a minute. Oh, never mind. Hold that for just a minute. We're going to look at layers in just a moment, all right? Good. By the way, uh, we're, we're in good Catholic stuff tonight. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that's what we told her last week. Which... Those who eat my flesh and drink my blood abide in me and I in them, just as the living. Just as the living. And this is, this is he's hitting this one home. Not just the Father, just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever eats me will live because of me. I mean, yeah, Jesus, if you have any question, Jesus did say, eat me, literally. Don't you wish Lee was here? <laughs> No. <laughs> I love Lee, but right now, I'm glad he's not here. I knew it. I love Lee, but I'm glad he's not here this session. This, this session and last week alone. I'm going to pull it back to verse 36 and finish the paragraph. Those who eat my flesh and drink my blood abide in me and I in them. I don't want to miss that bit about the, the two sides of it. Those who eat my flesh and drink my blood abide in me. That seems reverse. And I and them seems right. I mean, my goodness, they ate you. So, of course. But by eating and drinking, we are exercising faith. And by eating and drinking, because we exercise faith, not only does he come to reside within us, but we are then incorporated into him. The act of faith in eating and drinking incorporates us into Jesus. Remember, John's gospel does not contain in the Last Supper the words of institution. You have foot washing. 
you have the dispute about Judas. You don't, you have the dispute of who's the greatest in the kingdom, but you don't have this is my body and this is my blood. That's found here in John chapter 6. We, we hit it earlier. We hit it right up here in verse 50. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that, the one, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. This is my body, which is given for you. This is the living bread that comes down from heaven. Whoever eats of this bread will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Or put more properly from the Greek, the bread that I will give is my flesh for the life of of the world. Do you ever use that in a communion service? Yeah. Okay. I have. Okay. The bread which I will give is my flesh for the life of the world. This is my body given for you. This is an echo of the words of institution. The whole chapter the whole gospel deals with these ideas. And it's not a surprise that it's placed up here in John chapter 6. We've already seen that John continually front loads yeah. all of these affirmations Extreme about Jesus that are spread throughout the synoptics and growing understanding of who Jesus is in the synoptics all get front loaded in the first three, four chapters. No, not a wonder that this gets pushed all the way into chapter 6 when it's ought to be somewhere around 16. <laughs> Right. Mm. The sacrifice. Those who eat my flesh and drink my blood abide in me and I in them. Just as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father. I could do a whole lot with the living Father and I live because of the Father. Wow. So whoever eats me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Not like the bread that your, which your ancestors ate and they died, that, that manna stuff, that what is it bread. But the one who eats this bread, Jesus, the one who eats this bread will live forever. He said these things while he was teaching in the synagogue at Capernaum. And for all of you over here, when we walk into that synagogue a week from today, think about that. <laughs> think about these words. And y'all can think about them when you go with us next time. <sighs> Can't wait. Uh, can I, I got a question. Now, it was going to talk about the layers. Not layers yet. I got a really big question. Okay. If he's, t if he's, I mean, if we're saying this and we're writing it, maybe the layers will explain part of this. But um, and then Jesus gets up on the cross and dies later. Because I know we're extreme front loading. Okay. Well, Why, yeah. if people believe this and this is in red right here in my book, see? so and he said it, then why didn't anybody eat or drink his blood when he was dying? As he died, why didn't somebody go up to the cross? To, Oh my God, he's about to go. I better have a piece of flesh and some blood here, which is all over the place anyway. Because they I don't understand why they didn't do that. Because they did it in the novel, Stranger in a Strange Land. <laughs> <laughs> i got to read that book. By Robert A. Highland. They grokked him. <laughs> oh, God. How did that work out? I didn't read that. Worked out really well for, for, for Michael, Michael Smith. It worked really well for him. He did. 
<laughs> they cooked him as a stew. <laughs> Ew. Ew. It's a great story. If you haven't read it, read it. It's a fat. It's a fat. Hey, it was right. They said he needed salt. <laughs> Jubal Harshaw goes, I think he needs a little bit of salt. But, oh. but Michael was always a little bit dry. <laughs> Poor little. Oh. Uh, Okay, that was a good deflection now. Yeah, it was a good deflection. <laughs> I like that. I enjoyed that. Thank you. Um, explain it. Well, I know where we're going, so I thought I'd lighten it up. Yeah. <laughs> that was good. Because at that point in time, I mean, you want me to give you one solid answer without joking? Who was there who heard this? There's nobody there who heard this at the yeah. cross. I except for except spread. for except for the disciple whom Jesus loved, and he's taking care of mom right now. Jesus has given and his mother to him. All the disciples were there. Then why wouldn't he be? This is about the biggest and most ex- well. They, that there they is have in all. They the have already. Bible. They have already fled. They've all fled except John in, in the gospel. We will see. They've all fled, but but the disciple whom Jesus loved, and Jesus had said, "Behold your mother, mother. Behold your son. You know, hey John, take hey, care take of her." Care. Was Mary allowed in Capernaum uh, synagogue? Hmm? Was Mary allowed in the yeah, on the women's side? Oh, you'll see the women's side. <laughs> we might yeah, be on the women's side. <laughs> 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 might confine you to the women's. <laughs> <laughs> No, um, it's a little half for you. It, the the point is, is that quite frankly, I mean, if you want to be literal, sure. there was nobody there who would have heard this except for John, and John's busy, and John supposedly really understand what he means because it's more than just it is, it is, it is not less than what he says. It's more than what he says. It's not less literal than what he says. It's more than what he says. I, I, I want to take it to the point that will help with that, and it's the point we reached last time. Because this has all been reviewed. <laughs> when many of his disciples heard it, they said, this teaching is difficult. Who can accept it? Golly, Jesus, this is hard. But Jesus, being aware that his disciples were complaining... <laughs> said to them, does this offend you? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? If you think this is hard, you're expecting the Messiah to be victorious over Rome and establish the kingdom of David. But you ain't going to see that. You're going to see him die, be buried, and be raised and ascended into heaven, which is not what messiahs do. If you find this hard, your whole expectation of what messiahs are supposed to do and be is going to get blown out of the water. If you can't understand and accept this, how can you accept the totality of the of what's going to happen, of salvation history? You can't. Why? Because you're trying to understand this with your own understanding, with your own wits. Most Protestants, when they read chapter 6, rush as fast as they can to verse 63. They make a mad dash, skipping verses, trying to get through from verse 35 until they can get their rear ends to verse 63. Because they love what they think it says. 
It is the spirit that gives life. The flesh is useless. And they usually then say, see, Jesus didn't really mean it literally. Well, if that's the import of that statement, then how in the world can we possibly understand Jesus' statement in verse 55 where he says, For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. That's a direct contradiction if that's the meaning of the passage. But in point of fact, if you follow the antecedents of the pronouns, you know that the reference here has nothing to do with what Jesus said. Instead, it has to do with their understanding. It is the spirit that gives life. It is the flesh. The flesh is useless. Let me translate that slightly. It is the spirit that gives you understanding. The brain is useless. Your brain, your cognitive abilities, your ability to understand the things of the spirit will fail you. You cannot understand what I've just said by those faculties of learning that you have. It is something that is experienced spiritually. You can, and this has my, been my experience over 20 years trying to understand this stuff. You can talk about it all you want. You can try to explain it all you want, but you can't. But when you go in and you go to the table of the Lord, and you receive from the table of the Lord with faith, you suddenly have an interior understanding, a spiritual understanding, an experience of what it means to partake of Christ in a way that goes beyond human ability to comprehend. That's why I am so very proud of the United Methodist Church that we took the position of holy mystery. Instead of trying to explain it like our sisters and brothers in Rome, we simply said, we give up. And in fact, our position is predicated on verse 63. Our brains, the flesh, cannot comprehend this, it's but what, we accept it anyway. That's what Paul said. It's Paul precisely what Paul said. A natural man can't comprehend the things of the Spirit of God. That is totally in unison with what Paul said. Which is why taking communion six days a week for some odd years, the experience is never the same. Mm -hmm. The experience is different and it depends on where my brain is at. And taking communion on Sunday, now that I've been going to Bible study and reading my Bible every day, I have been reading my Bible almost every day for two years. Wow. And uh, using the uh, lectionary? Lectionary. Yeah. And, and having a daily reading and when I lately when I've been going there I find this peace I've never ever experienced after going to the altar and going through all of that there was that sense of belonging there was that sense of being loved when I didn't feel loved mm -hmm. but now I belong and have this intimate relationship and it frightens me that I'm not as it's kind of hard to say. I know I'm going to screw up pretty soon. <laughs> and what I think is, it bothers me that I know I'm going to, but what is amazing to me is that I can do, go to that altar at any time. Mm -hmm. 
and I will have that same love there. You can go to that altar both physically and reality, or emotionally and spiritually, and anytime and anywhere. Metaphorically, yeah. God's altar is is available. Yeah. The the Eucharist is a temporal, spatial focus, and a very critical one, but it's not the only one. It's one of the things I have repeatedly said here. Lots of grace. Mm -hmm. Lots of forms of grace. I have. My own experience is such that there are times when I stand up there to celebrate communion as the pastor, and there are times when I'm standing there and I'm going, I better get away from this table quick because I'm, I know I'm not worthy to do this. Mm -hmm. And then I have to remind myself it's precisely because mm -hmm. God has called me to do this and it's because of what I'm getting ready to receive here that I can. That's certainly not worthy to do it. That's not the point. And um, I, I, I stand, sometimes I stand in absolute awe of what's going on there. Mm -hmm. Then I have to admit it, there have been times, many times, when it's just going through a ritual motion. And it's usually when I've been disconnected, when I have been distracted, when I have, when whatever is going on in my life has sort of pushed me into this uh, cynical funk. And it takes a lot of things to yank me out of it. And uh, often, it's one of the reasons why I'm so very thankful that we, we do communion within the context of a full worship service, because it usually helps me to usher me into that state. Now, I can argue and, and define real presence all you like, but when it comes right down to it, the best way to talk about it, the best way to deal with the issue is simply to let you experience it and let it form you. And then within the context of experiencing it, you can then start to have an understanding of it. One of the most beautiful things that Martin Luther said when he was talking about receiving Jesus in Holy Communion, he said, with my mouth I eat bread and wine. With my faith, I eat Jesus' body and blood. Amen. I'm going to tell you something. That starts to get really close to defining in more modern Western terms some aspects of this idea. With my mouth, I eat bread and wine. But with my faith, I eat Jesus' body and blood. As a single snapshot, I think it's fabulous, but it is limited. Just as trying to define the Holy Trinity as saying, I am, my dad was the son of his father, the husband of his wife, and my father. One man, three different relationships, and you can identify the Trinity as functioning like that. Fine, but if that's the totality of it, it's modalism and that's a heresy. Uh, it, it, it is insufficient to explain the Trinity, to just to do it in those terms, but it's one snapshot of it. Similarly, what Martin Luther's definition is a snapshot of, of how the real presence is received, but it's not the only possible snapshot thereof, but it's certainly a good one. Um, Martin Luther taught consubstantiation that with the substance of bread and wine, comes the substance of Jesus' body and blood. 
that the bread and the wine take on the added characteristic, uh, the added signification of, of body and blood, flesh and blood. Um, it's not transubstantiation, it's, it's another understanding. It's not even, but it's not transsignification either, which is yet another way of thinking about the presence of Jesus. You have to deal with it, and the whole chapter is talking about it in such literal terms that in the end, I almost have to say, I give up, which is what our church has done. And I think appropriately so. <coughs> we give up. We simply know it's true. We encounter him at the table. We encounter him at the table. He encounters us at the table. When we come with faith, he is there. He meets us. We eat him. And however you want to understand that. Well, is it bread? Yeah, it's bread. Wesley used the term conduit. He, he used the term which means a heck of a lot today, the idea of a conduit, that the bread and the wine become a conduit through which Jesus' body and blood is conveyed to us. Through the means of bread and wine is conveyed the very life of God, quote unquote. And I love that one too. I mean, that's another way of saying the exact same thing. Um, that the spatial and temporal locality of bread and wine becomes that focus through which Jesus is conveyed to us. And that's essentially what, he's, what you have in Jesus himself. God is conveyed to us in Jesus, temporally and spatially located. And that's what he's saying when he says, eat me. Receive me, partake of me in all that I am. Not just my body, just not, not just my spirit, but all of me together. All of me, why not take all of me? Can't you see? I'm no good without you. Almost just like that. I mean, really, all of me. I'm joking, but it's also the essence of what he's saying here. And to, to then try to say, as many Protestants do, well, he didn't really mean it literally, and we shouldn't take it literally. Let's finish out the chapter, because I do want to talk about the layers. <laughs> I feel it. I feel that coming. But among you, the word, uh, back it up, verse 63. It is the spirit that gives life. The life is, the flesh is useless. Your brain is useless, friends. It's the spirit that's going to give you the true experience of this. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. In, the, in what I said to you before, you have true spirit and you have true life. You have true pneuma and you have true zoe. You have true, true, the totality of true existence in what I just said to you. Receiving me into you is eternal life. But, oh gosh, six, there's always a but hanging around mm -hmm. in there. And this is a big one. But among you, there are some who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the first who were the ones, that's interesting, who were the ones that did not believe and who was the one that would betray him. Da 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 da. Of course he knew that. And he said, verse 65, and he said, For this reason I have told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted by the Father. Interestingly enough, you could imply that to say that 
Judas was granted by the Father to come to Jesus for the very specific purpose of betraying him. <laughs> wow. Don't normally think about coming to Jesus for the purpose of betraying him. But that's precisely what Judas did. Because of this, many of his disciples, notice the distinction in here. Because of this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer went about with him. So Jesus asked the 12. There are disciples and then there are disciples. There's the 12, heck, there's the three. Peter, James, and John. There's the 12, whom we know. And then there are the outer circles of disciples in greater and greater orbits. And it's those outer circles that started to depart from him. And, and why? Because of what he said. Uh, and that because of this is a reference essentially to everything that has come before. And to verse 60 where he said where his disciples are saying mm -hmm. this teaching is difficult, who can accept it? They, you know. It was a difficult message they were hearing, this whole idea. Mm, okay. That he becomes the bread of presence for them. Wow. It was difficult, so they started to leave him. Interestingly enough, while the 12 are mentioned, and it says that many of his disciples, it doesn't say all, of course, many of his disciples started to leave him, and then, but it's clear that the 12 are still there. Other people who are still there are the, the women that are hanging around. They're included in the inner circles, even if they're not named. Well, they are sometimes named, but they're not named as part of the 12. So Jesus asked the 12, do you also wish to go away? Simon Peter answered, Lord, to whom can we go? You have the words of eternal life. For once, that smelly fisherman got him. <laughs> you have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe. We have come to faith and know that you are the Holy One of God. Now, some translations, like the King Jimmy, will say that you are the son of the living God. But that's later manuscripts. Mm -hmm. The earliest manuscripts are literal in when it says, we have come to believe, to faith, and know that you are the Holy One of God, which is actually a higher statement than to call someone the Messiah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Jesus answered them, did I not choose you, the 12? Yet one of you is a devil. He was speaking of Judas, son of Simon Iscariot, for he, though one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Now, with that ending, you can see part of the layering going on. Oh, yeah. You can see the editorial layering here, right there at the very end. Remember, you've got the very earliest layer, the anecdotal layer that goes right back to John himself, the beloved disciple. We saw that in the feeding of the 5,000. We saw that in the, the, the disciples on the, on the water and Jesus coming to them. 
We saw that in the beginning of the dispute, the discourse between Jesus and the people who came looking for, you know, happy meals. And we see all of that there. And then you see, you probably also see that initial layer in, in a good chunk of this through here in verse 35, where Jesus starts with that, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry, and whoever believes in me, whoever fades in me, will never be thirsty. And then it, and it goes down through here, and then it's a positioning of Jesus' identity. That first layer is somehow occasioning the second layer interpretation of Jesus speaking point blank, I am not only did you receive manna in the wilderness, but I am the living bread. I am the gift of God's nourishment for you. And John takes Jesus' statement there, what he did for the 5,000 at Tabitha, what he is saying here in response to them because they're hungry and they're looking for miracle bread. And he's saying to them, you, you got manna in the wilderness and you still died, but I am your living bread. I am your source of nourishment. You eat of me, you will never be hungry. You drink of me, you will never be thirsty. All of these statements reflect upon what had happened earlier the day before at the feeding of the 5,000. Also occasions a direct connection between that event and what Jesus said in response to them and the Lord's Supper, the Last Supper, that meal where where Jesus takes the bread and says, this is my body, and takes the cup and says, this is my blood. It, it's impossible not to draw the connection, which then occasions the question, well, what is it that they're doing then when he says, this is my body and this is my blood? And so you get this interpretive layer here, which takes these, this further discourse from 41 down and weaves in this continually affirm, a continual affirmation about Jesus as the living bread and eating his flesh and drinking his blood. So you have your initial layer at the beginning all the way through certainly through 40. And then at 41... You're talking about from the beginning of chapter 6 to, the, to verse... Yeah, in, 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 inclusive of the feeding of the 5,000. Right. And, and one way we know that is because the feeding of the 5,000 immediately follows. It, remember, it's the only miracle that's in all four Gospels other than the resurrection. Yeah. It's the only miracle that's in all four Gospels. It is immediately followed just as it is in the synoptics with the, the, the disciples on the water and Jesus walking on the water though. So you've got, you've got that, and yet that event interrupts the flow of the story that John is clearly trying to communicate and connect back. It wouldn't happen that way unless this is coming from that very early phase, that earliest layer. You wouldn't get that. And for whatever reason, the later editor wasn't willing to interrupt it because it was too important to him, too early. I'm not going to mess with it. But I am willing to start tacking on interpretations. And that's kind of what you have in what follows. You have a mix of a layer of interpretation from 41 down through 51. 
where you have things that are based upon what Jesus said but interpreted. So you've got more paraphrastic content. And then, where it gets the hardest is 52 and following, you have that third layer of interpretation where not only are we going to take what Jesus said but, and, and, and we have it interpreted, but now we're going to apply it to the church today, i.e. John's church. We're going to apply it to the church today in how we understand what we're doing when we go to the table of the Lord. We're eating of Jesus. We're being nourished by him in a very literal sense. And that idea, that thinking, that process seems to be implicit in what we read from the early church fathers, especially from Justin Martyr and Ignatius of Antioch and Clement of Caesarea, Clement of Rome, Augustine later on, uh, John Chrysostom of Constantinople, in his sermon on this very chapter, I, I went back and re-skimmed it today, and in his sermon on this very chapter, he was point blank in that this is Jesus speaking not just to the Jews, not just to his disciples then and there, this is Jesus speaking to us. And he was picking up on the fact that John, and, and we saw, we've seen this repeatedly, John has these multiple targets that he keeps hitting. And, and Jesus, in, in, in it's a theological interpretation of Jesus so that you can take what Jesus said and then apply it to the people then and there. You can apply it to people in John's day, the author's day. You can apply it to the church eternal, everywhere, today. And that's more and more what we're getting here towards the end here. We're getting a, a weaved interpretation based upon, it's why it's repetitive, by the way. It's because he's saying multiple different ways what Jesus said earlier. I am the bread of life. Eat me and you'll never be hungry. Drink of me and you'll never be thirsty. He's, he's, he's continually repeating this to make it clear that what we're doing when we go to the table of the Lord is we are truly being nourished by Jesus. That's formed. In other words, the practice of communion formed the final layer of John's gospel, John chapter 6. Absolutely, but what I'm not getting is if he's going to be repetitive, then this guy is the number three layer here. Uh-huh. Very theological, going to be repetitive. Yes. Your mind the is third editor. Your mind is worthless. You can't understand this. Essentially anyway. correct. You've got to go right. to the Spirit. Right, you've got to go to the Spirit anyway. Can you not put, if you're going to repeat all this stuff, can you not put like four words in there? And this is communion, folks, they rather really, than us having to interpret an interpretation saying that it's To communion. them it was so obvious that it, yeah, it didn't have obviously. to be done. And now here's something, here's a thought that, that came to me today that I knew but didn't really hit the import of until today. Now, remember back to synoptic studies. In the synoptic studies we learned that Matthew and Luke utilized Mark and they utilized Q. And Q contained the teachings of Jesus, written down in Aramaic by Matthew, then translated into Greek fairly early on, was available to Paul, and then was utilized by Matthew and Luke in writing down their Gospels along with Mark. That's fine. 
That's a very early layer of the teachings of Jesus. But do you realize that in the New Testament, the very first quote of anything that Jesus said anywhere is, this is my body. Because Paul quotes it in 1 Corinthians, which was written in the early 50s. And while we have quotes of Jesus in Matthew and in Luke, that come from Q, which come from before then, those are quotes that Matthew and Luke are quoting from Q. The most direct citation of, and the earliest of anything that Jesus said is found in 1 Corinthians, where Paul quotes him in the words of institution. This is my body. So that understanding, that articulation of Jesus is rooted back, right back at the very earliest layer of the communication because 1 Corinthians isn't the first piece of literature in the New Testament. It's the second or third. First piece of literature is 1 Thessalonians. Then probably Galatians, then 1 Corinthians. Probably in that order. And 1 Corinthians, therefore, written in the early 50s, predates the Gospels being written down predates Matthew and Luke quoting Q. Probably doesn't predate Q because Rome, Paul quotes Q. But Q doesn't contain the words of institution. That came from Mark. And Mark is quoting Peter's preaching on the subject. And Mark didn't write it down until like 68. So actually, in terms of when it was written down, the first words of Jesus ever written down come in 1 Corinthians where Jesus says, this is my body. Which means that the whole conception of communion sits at the very beginning of the whole articulation of who Jesus is and was and is for us today. And so it's no wonder that it then served to form and reform repeatedly the Johannine authors, both John himself in the initial literal layer in the later layers of interpretation that come back and say, okay, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. He said, this is my body in communion. How can we make it most clear that what he meant was eat me? Well, let's write that. <laughs> <laughs> Essentially, that's what, it, it, you, can, you can understand this as an interpretation of what Jesus said and did and, how, and, and the importance of it. Why didn't they say, this is communion? Well, because it's still being written within the context of the narrative story of John as taking place at that time and place. The later editor could have said, oh, by the way, when we're doing the Lord's Supper, that's what we mean. Well, that, that's just not something that they did. That's just not something that... And this was supposed to be given to the people in the synagogue. The well, place. the speech is taking place in the synagogue. And the yeah. speech is about my, eat my flesh, uh -huh. drink my blood. Yeah. And if we're following that narrative, that's to the people in the synagogue, they probably wouldn't have known what the hell they were talking about with communion. They probably would have picked him up and thrown him out uh -huh. of the <laughs> Or tried yeah. to. Let's see if they certainly tried to do that many this. times. <laughs> okay. They tried, certainly tried to do that many times. But, you know, that's, I, I just can't get around that. This very idea forms the thinking processes of not just the Johannine community, but the Pauline community and 
even the Jewish Christian communities in Caesarea and, and up north in Antioch and Damascus and the, in the diaspora Judaism following the destruction of the Second Temple. The, the Lord's Supper became critically important, so much so that Matthew, Mark, and Luke place it at that pinnacle moment. And, and John decides not to include it at all. Instead, he frontloads it, like he frontloads everything else of importance. Towards the beginning, he, he frontloads the, the cleansing of the temple, which takes place at the end of Jesus' ministry in the synoptics. He puts it in front of his ministry. So you've got the proclamation of the gospel to non-Jews, to the Samaritans. That doesn't happen until later on in the synoptics when, when you know, you get the, the, the centurion and other non-Jews. Syrophoenician women. Syrophoenician, exactly. It happens later. John front loads it in the very beginning, way up in front. The continual things that are important get front loaded in John. The most important being who Jesus is. We see it repeatedly throughout the gospel. Well, this is important and everything that follows this is going to be colored by this. Deeply colored by it. Let's, let's finish, well we finished chapter six. Yeah. Mm -hmm. We're not going to get any further. We didn't get any further in first <laughs> the morning session either, so I wasn't particularly worried about it. But uh, chapter 7 continues this idea, so you have to kind of keep it in mind. Um, so what did Jesus mean? I mean, that was one of the things that a couple of people in the first class wanted. So you mean this literally? And I said, yeah, I mean it literally. I mean it more than literally. Just as I believe... For example, in the Articles of Religion, it says that we partake of the flesh and blood of Jesus after a heavenly, quote-unquote, after a heavenly and spiritual manner. The Reformers who wrote that back there in the Reformation understood things that are after a heavenly and spiritual manner to be more real yeah. than things that are after an earthly and carnal manner. <laughs> and, and so for them... Communion and partaking of the flesh and blood of Jesus is more real than this real. Eating Jesus in communion is more real than ordering a pizza from Pizza Hut and eating the pizza. Because that just nourishes your body and you're going to die. That, that'll die. It'll just add fat to your waistline and then you'll end up dying probably because of it. Whereas eating Jesus, you'll live forever. It doesn't add fat to the waistline. It adds sanctification to the soul. The virtual reality is more important than the perceived carnal reality. That's interesting. The virtual reality is That's more right. important than the perceived carnal reality. That's one way to put it. The matrix is more real. <laughs> yeah, that's fine. Or avatar. Avatar. Actually, it's the other way around because the matrix was was the artificial right. universe. The real universe was that which was outside of the matrix. That was where the real thing happened. And yet what happened in the matrix could kill you on the outside. Exactly. Yep. In the movie. You've seen the matrix, haven't you? Kind of like You've seen the matrix. Oh, no. Huh? I have, she has. Yeah, oh, okay. Oh, you're you gonna have fun explaining that movie. one. Yeah. <laughs> That's gonna be a lot of fun. No, I'm just it's gonna a, let her watch it. It's a, fa it's a fabulous movie yeah, it's a, it's for this kind of thing. That stuff. That's why I pulled it. It's mm -hmm. that idea is kind of what's going on here. I I think the reformers were right on the mark there. 
Just like, as Dr. Scott used to say, supernatural is more natural. It's more real than real. It's, it's more real than this here. And that's what I, that's how I view this. I, I view the, when we're eating at the table of the Lord, it is more real that that is Jesus than, than the bread and the wine, which almost sounds like transubstantiation, by yes, the way. Yes, it does. It gets kind of close to it. But, but then yet, my I'm own, Catholic. but I'm as I said Catholic last Catholic. time, or was it time before that, that my own definition of, of transubstantiation is it identifies it not within the bread and the wine on the table, it identifies it within the person who's receiving. We become transubstantiated. We may still smell and look and feel and taste like us, but we become Jesus. We become the real presence of Jesus to the world. And the body of Christ. We become the body of Christ. Yeah. We become the body of Christ. And that's what Scripture tells us. So hence, the idea of transubstantiation has an element of scriptural character within it if you locate it within us. We become transubstantiated. Our substance is no longer us, it's Jesus, even though our accidents is us. Otherwise, we'd all be walking around in togas with a beard. <laughs> <laughs> Nevertheless, um, six does deal, and by the way, as I said last time, all of Christian theology that struggles with the meaning of Holy Communion dances around in chapter 6. Deals with it. Even Protestant interpretations have dealt with it. The United Methodist Church's Holy Mystery dealt with it. One of my jobs for the committee was to go through the literature for the last 300 years I actually went all the way back to the Church Fathers, but the last 300 years especially, from the Protestant Reformation, to see how it had been interpreted. And was there anything of import that probably would help the committee? And the result of my research was, uh, no, what you need to do is you need, you need to go back further <laughs> than just the Reformers. And that if you don't take it seriously, you miss it. And that in the end, it's an, it's an experiential reality, not a mental reality. Hence, 63 became critical. And it was in 63, chapter, verse 63, that the, the committee essentially said that the concept of holy mystery is rooted. This idea that it isn't us, our flesh, our brains that can interpret it. It's our experience. It's the Spirit that interprets it. It's Jesus himself that interprets it. It's the Holy Spirit within us that interprets it. It's the Father who gives it. And so the best way to understand Holy Communion is to partake of it. listening to a Bible study by Dr. Gregory Neal, Senior Pastor of St. Stephen United Methodist Church and Rector of Grace Incarnate Ministries. Copyright 2010 by Dr. Gregory S. Neal. All rights reserved. For more information or to listen to other seminars, Bible studies, or sermons by Dr. Gregory Neal, visit us on the web at www.revneal.org. That's www.revneal.org. You are also invited to visit us in person at St. Stephen United Methodist Church, 2520 Oates Drive, Mesquite, Texas, 75150. This program was produced by Dr. Greg Neal.